Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, priviet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have a fantastic episode for you today with amazingly intelligent, eloquent, and creative guest, author Leslie Shimo Takahara joins the show. Leslie's memoir, The Reading List, won the Canada-Japan Literary Prize in 2012, and her fiction has been shortlisted for the K.M. Hunter Artist Award. She has also written two critically acclaimed novels, After the Bloom and Red Oblivion, both published by Dundurn Press. These novels blur between fiction and nonfiction. After the Bloom draws upon her grandmother's teenage experience of the Japanese-American internment during the Second World War. It was commended by Booklist as personal and entrancing, unflinchingly shining a light on this difficult part of history. Her more recent novel, Red Oblivion, is a literary thriller set in Hong Kong, inspired by the time she spent living there with her Chinese-Canadian husband and her elderly father. Red Oblivion was the Word on the Street's Book of the Month for January, included in the 49th Shelf's Great Books for the Moment and praised by Kirkus Review for showing virtuosity in this subtle deconstruction of one family's tainted origins. In 2018, Leslie served on the jury for the Governor General's Nonfiction Award, and her writing has appeared in the National Post, World Literature Today, and Changing the Face of Canadian Literature, among other anthologies and periodicals. She has a PhD in English from Brown University, where she wrote her dissertation on the relationship between American regionalism and modernism in the fiction of Edith Wharton, William Faulkner, and Ralph Ellison. Over the years, Leslie has lived in a variety of amazing places, including Trinidad, Toronto, Montreal, Providence, Berlin, and Hong Kong. On today's episode, Leslie chats about how she blends fiction and nonfiction in her writing and the advantages and disadvantages that come with joining the two disciplines. Leslie also discusses the emotions that go into writing a memoir and how she handles the challenges of writing about her own experiences. Finally, I was incredibly curious about the cities in which Leslie has lived, and I wanted to know how each of those places have shaped who she is today. And Leslie takes us through those locations and how they've impacted her on a personal level and also some of her favorite food experiences in those cities. This was such a wonderful conversation for me. I learned so much from Leslie. She was easily one of the most intelligent people in which I have ever spoken. She has a passion for writing, but that comes from her deep adoration for literature in general. She loves reading, and you can hear the excitement in her voice when she chats about literature, and I think it has enhanced her ability as a writer. A remarkable woman, and I'm elated for everyone to meet her. So let's go ahead and bring on author Leslie Shimo Takahara, and let's learn. Leslie, your memoir, The Reading List, won the Canada-Japan Literary Prize in 2012. And as a memoir, there are many intimate and personal emotions that go into its writing. So how did the writing of the reading list differ from your previous projects? And with that, was it difficult to write about your own experiences? Um, I would say that it was actually comparatively easier for me to write um, a memoir over a novel, over the two novels that I've written. Um, there's less creative scope um, in writing a memoir because you know you're constrained to some extent anyway by your real life by what actually happened i wrote this memoir in 2009 through 2010 when i after i had just moved back to toronto from rural nova scotia where i had been um, an english professor for a couple of years 
after finishing my PhD at Brown and um, with a focus on modern American literature. Um, so the memoir is really about this very turbulent two-year period of my life um, as a new professor, expecting that um, I was really going to love being a professor because the study of literature and you know reading, writing had always been my passion. But instead, I found myself um, really suffering from massive burnout, um, having something of a breakdown, and just realizing that um, the life of a professor was really not for me um, for various reasons. Yeah. One being that um, I'm actually quite introverted and shy. And so the um, daily process as a professor at a liberal arts university of doing these fairly large lectures of 50 to 100 undergrads, um, I found I just didn't have the right personality for it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not the, you know, brilliant generalist who can be, um, you know, telling jokes and has that sort of broad interest in um, thousands of years of English literature from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf. My interest has always been much more in terms of depth and intimacy with a sort of a much um, narrower slice of the canon. Um, and so, yeah, the memoir served, I would say, a somewhat therapeutic purpose for me, the writing, um, as it um, allowed me to reflect upon that turbulent period of my life and my search for a new career and my search for a new relationship to um, literature, the novels that I loved, and that ultimately, once I moved back to Toronto, um, led me back to my childhood love of creative writing. How much of the writing was retroactive and reflecting back compared to journal thoughts that you had along the way? Did you have some that you stored during the process? Um, I wasn't keeping like a notebook or a diary, if that's what you mean. So it was all through recollection and um, reflection. But it was um, because I was writing it the year after I had left, mm -hmm. um, still quite present in my mind. Um, and to answer the second part of your question, um, by contrast, I would say that novel writing for me is a much more indirect and exploratory process. Um, at the beginning of writing a novel, I never, I, well, with my first novel, I did do a detailed outline, but then I found that um, after a fairly short period, I abandoned the outline and realized that my writing process um, unfolds much more organically and fluidly if I just sort of allowed myself to fall, allow the characters to take on lives of their own and follow the storylines um, where they seem to be naturally flowing. Um, and so, yeah, like with novels at the outset, I have a kind of general outline that's simple enough for me to hold in my head. Um, and then through subsequent drafts, um, the, the characters and the um, storylines evolve and um, I find myself, um, you know, in the editing process. One of the delights of the editing process is the surprise element. Um, seeing characters go in unforeseen directions sometimes. Well, you're the first writer on the show to use the word delight in editing in the same sentence, because usually that's the part that they, they like the least. Your novels blend between fiction and nonfiction. You mentioned you like things to happen naturally, organically. I'm curious mm -hmm. what the advantages and disadvantages are 
when it comes to blending something that's real and also something that you created? Um, well, um, for me, the stories that have been most um, vivid for me have been since childhood, ones that connect to my family history. Um, you know, my, my ancestral family history, I'm fourth generation Japanese Canadian. Um, which means that my great-grandparents immigrated to North America um, at the end of the 19th century. And um, so since childhood, I've had my, I had a grandmother, um, my late grandmother, um, was a very vivid storyteller, and she talked quite, um, she talked quite extensively about um, her childhood growing up um, in Northern British Columbia, um, Prince Rupert, the Queen Charlotte Islands in the early 20th century during the period when um, the Canadian government was really opening up the extractive logging industry, particularly during World War One, when the Allies needed those Sitka spruce trees, which are just enormous and godly for the Allies fighter planes in Europe. Um, and the, the labor force, the loggers in these camps were largely Oriental. Chinese, Japanese. Um, and so my grandfather had um, worked at one of these camps and sort of risen to um, kind of foreman position. Um, and so these, these stories within my family, which are nonfiction to some extent, they're also filtered through my grandmother's, um, you know, retelling and her own sort of creative shaping of them, of course of course, mythologizing. Um, these stories have just always been um, very much at the forefront, forefront of my imagination growing up. Um, and so, you know, when it comes time, when it came time to um, write, to, you know, ask myself, what are the stories that are most pressing to me, most important to me, that I could really sort of see myself um, spending, you know, fairly substantial periods of time. I've never written a novel in less than two years, and um, my first novel took five years. So these are fairly lengthy time investments. Um, and so it was these stories that felt most intimate to me um, and most compelling that come from, you know, nonfiction within sort of the family lore. Mm -hmm. um, I think the only disadvantage of this approach is that sometimes I worry that at some point I may run out of stories. Um, <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't happened yet, but you know, it may at some point be that I've exhausted that body of material. Um, and then, you know, at that point I'll have to explore another creative approach. And, you know, I have faith that, um, I have faith that, you know, other stories will sort of come to me to fill that void and, you know, I may shift to writing more contemporary fiction or, um, you know, since childhood, I've always been an avid fan of detective novels as well. So I have, you know, a strong respect for that kind of genre as well. Um, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with this approach. Yeah. <laughs> with projects of that duration, you mentioned two years, even five years. How do you continue on when you can't see the finish line? I know there's got to be lots of times you're like, why am I doing this? I'm not even near where I want to complete. And it's going to take me forever. How do you continue to push on? Um, I would say that in, like in general, it's the daily writing process that, that elevates my mood. And, um, you know, like that, that sort of consistency, I've always been, um, 
I think, kind of a creature of habit. Um, that consistency of the daily writing routine, that's never been a struggle for me. Um, the obstacles, the times when I might be feeling sort of burnout or I might be feeling self-doubt, um, you know, that might come from, I've shared a draft with my agent or my agent has shared a draft with an editor. The editor has put forth some comments that point towards fairly substantial revisions, rewriting half the novel or pushing it in, uh, in a different direction. Um, so, you know, I might feel emotionally rattled upon receiving that kind of feedback. And so um, what I would generally do is put the manuscript aside for, you know, anywhere between two to four months to just try and gain perspective and try to sort of, you know, figure out, am I feeling emotionally rattled because I agree with um, this advice? Um, but I'm just, you know, hesitant to sort of roll back the manuscript and rethink it to that extent. Um, fortunately, I enjoyed the editing process. So <laughs> the lights, if I yeah. <laughs> at a gut level that that's the right direction um, for me to take the novel in, then, you know, that prospect actually excites me. But it will take, it will take sometimes, you know, two to three months for me to just sort of mull it over um, and gain that perspective. You know, or I may conclude that that's a really interesting approach, but that just is not my vision for the novel. Well, and I've got, you know, a different set of revisions in mind. Um, that, if I can jump in real quick, that was going to be my next question was, is that how do you balance that? Because I had, a, I had actually a detective novelist on Charles Salzberg recently who mentioned that when it comes time to editing, he could do that. He can change it. He was adaptable to that. But he also had a friend who, when they suggested, hey, we suggest these edits, her response was, well, that's not what happened. How do you balance that of, I have this vision, but I also am adaptable at the same time? Um, it's a gut instinct okay. thing, really. I mean, I find that in general, um, I come back to my original vision. However, my original vision, um, it's never you know, crystal clear. It's a sort of general shape of, of the story, a sort of mood, a tone. Um, maybe I have... Uh, a hazy sense of um, where the novel ends. I have sort of um, key um, scenes or key sort of moments um, in my head that provide kind of an overarching trajectory. Mm -hmm. I find that in general, um, I stay faithful to that just sort of instinctively. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, it is very much a sort of, you know, uh, gut instinct and my own sort of aesthetic preferences. Um, you know, yeah, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's not a science. <laughs> yeah. Red Oblivion is your most recent novel. So what's the premise for the book and what inspired its creation? So Red Oblivion um, is really a novel about family secrets. It's about two adult Chinese-Canadian daughters um, who receive an early morning phone call um, from their elderly father's housekeeper um, telling them that their father has collapsed, been rushed into surgery, his life hangs in the balance. And so they catch the first plane from Toronto to Hong Kong um, where they grew up to, to try to nurse him back to health. And in the process of doing that, um, they discover that in the days leading up to his collapse, he was being blackmailed by an old enemy going back to 
um, his, an earlier phase of his life when he lived in Guangzhou, China, on the other side of the border during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. Did you enjoy the research that went into it as far as the history? I, yeah, I do, very, very much so. Um, I mean, when I'm in the early stage of, you know, thinking about a novel, um, maybe doing some first drafts of chapters, it's during that period that I'm um, reading very widely an array of fiction and nonfiction books. So in the case of Red Oblivion, um, I was reading both memoirs like... Um, like um, Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, and novels like Soul Mountain, and then an array of um, anthologies of historical essays about uh, 20th century Chinese history with a focus on the Cultural Revolution, um, which was a period of um, fairly deep political unrest in China when um, Mao was losing his grip on party power, but he was able to regain it by mobilizing um, masses of these fanatical students um, who were known as the Red Guards, who engaged in violent protest, and then that um, spread throughout the broader society. When you're researching and looking for information, are you researching information to support maybe an idea you already have? Or do you go in with the mindset of, let me research, then I'll create an idea from that? Or is it a balance of the two? I think it's a balance of the two. It's probably a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm just sort of reading as broadly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the course of the writing, my writing kind of will naturally um, start sort of seeking out possibilities in terms of how can my, how can my plot drop on historical events or, you know, perhaps history provides more of the backstory as it did in Red Oblivion, um, provides kind of um, nuance in terms of understanding characters, the elderly father, for instance, who's quite mercurial, um, quite a difficult man in many ways. So I think it, I think it, it varies from project to project as well. Yeah. You mentioned about the writing process and you enjoy it as a daily activity. What other things do you do to keep yourself in the right mindset? Because in order to write a book, you've got to be in proper mental fitness, mental health. So what are some of the practices you do? I know you do enjoy yoga, but are there other aspects of maybe visualizations or journaling or meditation that you use as well? I definitely use meditation. Um, I would say I meditate almost daily. Um, I find that that's very useful in terms of just staying grounded and, um, you know, focused in a sort of calm state of mind. Um, I, t- I try to um, take walks, take solitary walks, particularly during the pandemic. I found that to be very useful. Um, and um, sometimes I find that the writing process itself can be kind of a form of, um, mm-hmm. you know, relaxation, um, putting me in kind of a flow state or, you know, um, sometimes if I'm feeling quite kind of rattled or I've got like a pain in the neck or something in the course of um, writing and escaping into that kind of literary realm, um, I find that that seems to really um, enhance my sense of calmness and well-being. How about for creativity? Are you someone who 
says, you know what, I'm going to be creative right now and I'm going to schedule a time to be creative or you let it happen organically and not force the issue? Yeah, I think it definitely happens organically. Okay. And it's, it's generally not for me like this sort of sudden burst or epiphany. Yeah. Um, it's much more, you know, it's, it's much more sort of just feeling that um, the storyline is, you know, the project, the manuscript, it's, it's, moving in, it's moving in the right direction and, you know, the um, pleasures of bringing it to fruition. With artists on the show, I often ask them, how do you know when your work is finished? You can go back five minutes later, five years later, and there's probably something that each artist says, I got to change that or I didn't do a good job there. What about you for writing? How do you know when it's finished? Because I'm sure that there's even elements in Red Oblivion in these books. You're like, gosh, if I was to do this again, I might change that. Yeah. Um, I think, again, it's a gut instinct thing. Um, you know, it's also, it's also a matter of um, authors' relationships to editors because, you know, that editors certainly have a say um, in terms of sort of the overall shaping of the book or sometimes, you know, an editor might put forth um, a fairly significant revision plan. So then it's a question of whether or not the author agrees with that, how enthusiastic is the author about um, taking the novel in that direction? Um, you know, in, in general, I would say that, um, I mean, I guess I've been lucky in the sense that with my two novels um, and memoir to date, I was able to find editors who were, who were excited about um, sort of sticking with the original vision. There were, you know, um, so I haven't had to, I haven't had to, um, you know, think too, too carefully about, um, you know, my own, I, I haven't, I have, I've never felt sort of pressure to um, revise the novel in a way that I had doubts. And I think, to be honest, um, that would be very difficult for me, if not impossible. Um, I've certainly, you know, I've had editors who have, who have suggested um, fairly significant revisions and I've, you know, sort of been mulling it over and, you know, feeling somewhat tormented <laughs> about <laughs> whether, whether that was the right um, direction to take the novel. And then, you know, the last minute my agent's been able to sort of find an editor who was wholly on board with the novel more or less as is. And then I generally felt uh, in those cases, a sense of tremendous relie relief. Um, so I think, you know, it's a combination of gut instinct when a novel is finished and then all of the other elements of the publishing industry that, you know, readers probably don't think about that much because those are all of the behind the scenes aspects. Well, I've been thinking about this ever since we started chatting about your passion for modern American literature and I was wondering while you were teaching, what were the books, the stories, and novels that really excited you? The ones that you geeked out on, you're like, I can't wait to teach this one next week or this one next month. Who were some of the writers or, or works that you loved the most? Um, it was many of the novelists that um, I had written my dissertation on. So it was um, short fiction authors like Sarah Orne Jewett, mm -hmm. um, American regionalists like Willa Cather, William Faulkner, um, 
fantasiecla authors like Edith Wharton and Henry James, um, you know, and then uh, jumping ahead a, a few decades, um, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, brilliant novel. Um, yeah, yeah. I have, I have, um, I have fond memories of um, that phase of my life, particularly the study of literature um, in grad school. And um, I found that like my favorite type of teaching really is conversation-based teaching. So it's a seminar table of, you know, six to 12 students and really engaging in um, in-depth conversation and a back and forth between um, instructor and students. Um, but what wasn't, what was really not for me was the lecture style mode of, um, you know, in the sort of mini auditorium, the lights are like shining down on me and I'm, you know, feeling kind of mildly vertiginous. <laughs> no. Most impactful books that you've read over the last year? Um, well, I just finished reading a novel by Diane Cook, I think that's her name, called The New Wilderness, um, which focuses on the relationship between um, a mother and daughter. It's this um, futuristic dystopian novel in which the wilderness has contracted to just this very sort of uh, limited um, state, and that's where this mother and teenage, sort of pre-adolescent um, daughter at the beginning of the novel find themselves. And it's about their struggle to survive. I found that quite, um, quite riveting. Um, this last year, uh, I think it was within this last year, um, I read Olga Tokarczuk's mm -hmm. um, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Um, which I found very moving. It's on the surface, it's this sort of um, classic whodunit um, detective story. But then, um, you know, it's really, it's really about um, so much more. It's this sort of reflection on ecology, on William Blake, on, you know, humans' relationship to animals. Um, all told through the perspective of this very idiosyncratic, quite fascinating narrator. Yeah, that sounds incredibly interesting. I'm curious, you've mentioned being an introvert. And for me, once I realized I was an introvert, it changed my life in so many ways. Because I think up to that point, I didn't know that I was. And then it was re repeatedly taking a personality test. And it was finally like, hey, you are. And once I realized that, I started to take it as a badge of honor, started being proud of it. And with that, I, I've learned how to better use my time, how to be more creative, because I'm not trying to fight against who I am. What do you enjoy most? And what are you proud of being an introvert? What makes you proud to be an introvert? Um, I don't, I've never really thought about it in yeah. this term, <laughs> to be honest. I think um, intimacy and conversation is um, perhaps something that, um, you know, comes naturally to introverts. Mm -hmm. um, like, for instance, at parties, I generally feel, I mean, not that there are any parties during the pandemic, but I generally feel a bit overwhelmed by this um, whole concept of mingling, like this 
notion that um, you know you should spend like five to ten minutes chatting with like dozens of people, um, you know, because I I just don't find that that mode of conversation or discourse feels natural or right to me. Um, I've always enjoyed much more sort of depth in conversations and you know one-on-one -on -one interactions. Um, primarily or you know social I, I much prefer socializing with um, small groups of friends mm -hmm. you know generally no more than two because then I feel as though if it's more than three of us then I might feel as though my attention's getting spread a little bit thin or I'm not able to sort of um, you know give each person enough um, attention and and you know, the conversation could then sort of begin to feel kind of superficial. For me, that's what I love most about being introverted is the conversations. They might be fewer, but they're, they're deep, they're profound. I'd much rather have that. Throughout your life, you have lived in some tremendous cities, Toronto, Berlin, Hong Kong. How has experiencing different cultures augmented your life? And do you feel that there's elements of each of those cities that you take with you? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I'd say the main thing that I enjoy about, you know, having moved around a little bit is um, living in, in other in new places, experiencing new cultures. It, it definitely shakes up one's own perspective. And I think in the process, I've learned a lot about myself. Mm -hmm. um, Toronto, of course, Toronto is where I grew up. So Toronto always kind of feels like home. Um, and I still live in Toronto for most of um, each year. Um, and the things that I things that I really admire about Toronto, I would say, are um, just a very sort of relaxed, laid back vibe. Um, you know, beautiful parks in the downtown. Um, lots of you know, interesting indie cafes and and little boutiques mm -hmm. uh, in the West End where I live. And um, you know, strong public schools, universal health care, all of these sort of um, cornerstones of Canadian society. Um, Berlin. So Berlin, um, I moved to Berlin during grad school, um, 2004 to 2005. I lived there for about a year and a half. Um, it was some, I chose Berlin somewhat randomly. I had finished all of my coursework for my PhD. Um, and so I was just writing my dissertation and I had a fellowship so I could sort of live anywhere. Um, I had a friend who had lived in Berlin and had spoken very highly of it. Um, but I, I really, I chose it somewhat randomly. Um, and um, I ended up just absolutely loving it because um, it was really, I would say, the art scene during that period that, um, that that I fell in love with um, the fact that um, there were just so many like galleries, experimental dance performances, plays in these kind of makeshift theaters that probably only seated like about a dozen audience members, and that you had to sort of like lean down and crawl um, through like a tunnel in order to get to the space, and were probably definitely not up to fire code. Um, and um, ateliers where jewelry designers were both working and living. And I think during that period, the German government was quite heavily subsidizing the arts and culture sector. 
Um, and so that was, you know, why there was this real kind of flourishing of the arts and everything was, was phenomenally affordable from rent to um, food to um, theater performances. Um, and so during that period, I just really, I probably spent far too much time just exploring the city um, and not enough time focusing on my dissertation. <laughs> it was actually during that period that I kind of fell out of love with my dissertation and um, began to think that, um, gosh, I'd really, I'd really love to be a novelist <laughs> instead. <laughs> but um, it took me a few more years before, um, you know, I really realized that I needed to make that leap. Um, as for Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong, um, when I first, the first trip I made to Hong Kong um, was about 11 years ago. Um, when my, when, you know, I had just met my then boyfriend, my now husband, so we came to Hong Kong um, so I could meet his father and just sort of, you know, see where he had grown up. Um, and my first impression of Hong Kong was just that it's so um, opulent and so sort of sophisticated, the futuristic architecture, particularly in the downtown core that's known as Central. Um, you just sort of feel like, my impression was that I was in a very high-end airport that just sort of sprawled um, throughout that whole downtown financial district um, because the the shopping um, areas, the concourse level shopping areas um, below these high-rise office towers are all connected by these Glaston walkways that um, take you over like maybe six or eight lanes of traffic. Um, so this is very convenient, particularly during the summer months when you know it might be 40 degrees here and 90 percent humidity and so walking outside is really not very pleasant but that um, because of these walkways you can you can go from building to building um, and have that sort of sense of experiencing the city while remaining in air conditioning um, and then more recently over the years um, I've like over the years I've generally come to Hong Kong particularly after my father-in-law's collapse um, when my husband and I, we needed to come much more frequently. Um, I've spent on average probably three to four months per year in Hong Kong. Um, and during that time, I've branched into exploring much more local neighborhoods, um, which I really love doing. I haven't done much of this during the pandemic, of course. Um, but uh, neighborhoods like Yaomate, for instance, where there are these mom and pop noodle shops and there's like the fruit market and um, and no one no one um, speaks much English in these neighborhoods. Um, so you know you really feel like you're exploring a different um, side of Hong Kong, one that hasn't been noticeably touched by the history of um, British colonialism. I love that you mentioned the walks in between the buildings because I know in Minneapolis, much, much smaller version of it, they have that similar for the cold weather. And I remember when I was there, I'm like, this is genius. I love that we can just go from building to building, skip over traffic, skip over the weather. One more question on your travels and the places you've lived. 
growing up in Toronto, very rich cultural, especially from the culinary cuisine. But what was what was the food that when you got to Berlin, you're like, wow, this is incredible. How have I never known about this? And something that you just you still think back to. Berlin, um, well, like Berlin, the, Berlin is very cosmopolitan. Um, so. I don't, I don't know if there's like a sort of distinctly Berlin food that sort of jumps to mind for me. I recall the food being um, consistently very good. And, you know, I remember eating at some Japanese restaurants and thinking that um, the sushi was, um, you know, certainly as, as good as the sushi like in Toronto or Vancouver. Um, I'd say like for, I would say the food in Hong Kong, maybe because, um, the memories of um, that are much more recent. I would say consistently, the food in Hong Kong um, is really delicious. I don't think I've ever had a bad meal in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, um, like a, a restaurant, a restaurant like Yardbird in Hong Kong, it's a yakitori bar, phenomenal. What do you think has been the biggest lesson you've learned over the last 12 months? I would say really patience and flexibility um one of the main one of the most concrete ways that the pandemic um affected my writing was that um i had to postpone a research trip to Haida Gwaii. um first it was supposed to take place last summer and then we postponed it my mother and i to this summer but um as a result of um travel bans related to the pandemic we're now going to it seems have to postpone it to 2022 and then you know we'll see what happens from there um but uh yeah this re this research trip ties to a novel that i've been working on for the past few years that um is set on the queen charlotte islands during the first world war these islands in northern british columbia are now called Haida Gwaii. Um, and um, as I mentioned earlier, my grandmother had, during her adolescent years, spent uh, quite a bit of time there. Um, and so, you know, my research and writing process over the past few years has been based on um, internet sources, books that I've read, documentary films that I've watched. Um, but I've had it in my head that this 10 day research trip that I was going to take with my mother would really allow me this kind of firsthand experience of the landscape that, you know, might allow me to sort of take the novel to the next level. Um, and so it has been, it, it was quite disappointing and frustrating that um, I've had to postpone the trip um, now twice and, um, and, yeah, so I think, you know, flexibility in, in terms of just um, accepting and recognizing that this trip is not going to be able to take place anytime soon. But I've continued um, writing um, based on the resources that are available, these other sources of research, online material, books. Um, and, you know, it, it, is, it, it is with... Um, historical novels always sort of an open question in my head to what extent does going to the locale actually help to what extent is it actually necessary or is it more that just by going to the place it, it boosts my confidence as a writer how can people stay up to date with your career and stay up to date with your writings and all your work how can they follow you 
Well, I have an author website at leslieshimotakahara.com. Um, I also have an author Facebook page, um, also under Leslie Shimotakahara. Um, and I'm on Twitter under at xlitprof. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Randall. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Much appreciation to Leslie. For more information, visit leslieshimotakahara.com and be sure to pick up her memoir, The Reading List. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway Show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.